Will you join me in prayer? Jesus, as we consider um, this chapter in the world's history, where something spectacular happened, and it all hinges on you being raised by God from the dead and ascending back to the Father, as you said would happen, and in telling those who are your disciples to wait, to watch and wait and see for the gift that you would give them, your spirit, your Holy Spirit. As we consider uh, that that's not just a story in a book, that's reality. That's still happening. Your church is still spreading. Your spirit is still being given in abundance. Your sons and your daughters are still prophesying. Your old men are still seeing visions. Your young men are still dreaming dreams. You will have your world back. Your love will not be stopped. And so as we consider uh, today the work of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just impart knowledge, that you would fall, that you would be present, that you would bind us together, that you would shape us into the likeness of the Son. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, For those who don't know me or haven't been able to introduce myself, my name is Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, As Nathan said, Hope Brooklyn, our our sort of tagline is wherever you are on the spiritual journey, there's room at the table. And so we're super grateful that you're joining us. Um, We are in the midst of a series entitled Questions. And the basic idea of this series is that we wanted to know what you guys had questions about. We wanted to know what aspects of Christianity or faith or religion did not make sense. And the most asked questions or the most asked topics, we sort of grouped into a particular uh, uh, message, and that's what we're going through. We have three pillars as a church, three pillars. I know if you've been here for a while, you can quote them back to me. Good, that's what we want. Um, But we have three pillars that guide us as a community and that will also guide us in the series. First, we're crowds and disciples. And that's our way of saying that you don't have to be a Christian to be here. You don't have to profess faith in Jesus. In fact, when I see Jesus living out uh, his life, conducting ministry. I always see around him two groups of people, crowds and disciples. There are those who are looking at him and what he's doing, hearing his teaching, seeing his miracles, and saying, hey, you're the Messiah. You're God's anointed. And there are those around him who they're just there for a show. They're just there to hear a good sermon. They're not sure what they think about him. And Jesus is perfectly fine with both these groups of people being there. And so wherever you are, or wherever your friends are, they're welcome here. Their questions are welcome here. There's no sense or needing to hide. Secondly, we're a community of the story. And what that means for us is Christianity is less a set of propositions that we sort of have to ascribe to. It's less a list that I gotta check off, oh, I live like this, I don't live like this. And it's more a story that 
kind of spookily, if that's a, spookily a word? I don't, I just made that an adverb. I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, whatever. Spookily, we, it's a story that we sort of awaken inside of. And we realize this isn't something I'm just reading in a book. This is actually happening right now. And therefore, when we realize that, and it's the story that the author's telling to foster a relationship with the author, it, uh, it sort of answers those other questions of then how should we live? And last, and most important, we eat together face to face. We always share a meal together. And everything we're doing, not on Sundays, it's around food. And the reason why we do that is because when I watched Jesus and his ministry, he was always eating with everyone. He got a bad rap because of who he ate with. And so we say, there's room at the table. So these three pillars are gonna guide us um, in our series and in today's message. And today's message is pretty much summed up in the question, who is the Holy Spirit? We got a couple questions related to spiritual gifts, on the work of the Spirit in the world. Um, some of y'all might know that today is Pentecost Sunday, which we'll talk about in a bit. So obviously I planned that one out. Um, and, but the question is, who is the Holy Spirit? And the reason why I think that's a, a really good question to talk about, it's kind of uh, encapsulated in this, this beginning of a prayer that I don't know where I heard this, but I love it because I think it's so funny and, and perfect. So it's this Japanese Christian and he's praying to the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is how he starts his prayer. He says, honorable Father, very good. Honorable Son, very good. Honorable bird, I do not understand at all. <laughs> and I feel like when we're considering the Trinity, he, he nailed it, basically, right? It's very easy when you look at Scripture to relate with a father and a son. We're told that the triune God, three persons in one distinct God, that there's a father and a son and a spirit. Well, we, can, we kind of, by analogy, by being humans, we can get the father and the son aspect. But the spirit is a little more nebulous, it's a little tougher. And when you look at the way the spirit is described throughout scripture, you have lots of different metaphors. The spirit is called breath, a wind, oil, fire, water, dove. I don't know what to do with that. That's a little tougher to approach. And in fact, when you examine the original languages, both Hebrew and Greek, the word for spirit is very expansive. It's two words. So in the Hebrew, the word is ruach, and ruach can mean spirit, it can mean wind, or it can mean breath. And in the Greek, it's pneuma, and it can mean spirit, wind, or breath. It's very expansive. It's not concrete, and therefore it's tougher to approach. When I think about the modern church, and specifically the modern church in the West, but this is global, I've found sort of four approaches that we make toward the third person of the Trinity, toward the Holy Spirit, four approaches. And I'm fortunate enough that at some point in my life, I've been a part of all four. Um, and I think that is fortunate because by firsthand experience, I can see what works, what doesn't work, what was complete, what was incomplete. And this is sort of my own creation, but this is what I would say the four responses for what the role of the Holy Spirit is and God's redemptive rescue plan for the world. And they're this, avoidance, avoidance. There are some traditions that because they don't know what to do with the honorable bird, they just kind of let it lie. So they talk a lot about the Father and the Son and really nothing about the Holy Spirit. 
Acknowledgement, but no action. And this I really experienced in seminary. So in seminary, because it's full of some really bright people who wanna be orthodox good Christians, when you read the story, you can't get away. There is a character called the Holy Spirit, right? Like a distinct role. So we acknowledge that there is a Holy Spirit, but we don't know what to do with it and we're kind of scared because whenever we see the Holy Spirit show up in scripture, it can make us really uncomfortable. And so we'll just acknowledge, but we won't act on it whatsoever. It's kind of like, um, anyone, any Arrested Development fans in here? Like Buster, right? Buster is constantly going back to school and he's never doing anything with it. That's kind of like, we can acknowledge there's a Holy Spirit, but I wanna go study basket weaving over there. Then there's action, but with no humility. And fortunately and unfortunately, I've been part of traditions, and you might have as well, where you've seen instances. One example that kind of epitomizes this for me. Um, so I was in college and finished up a service and leaving and we're walking in the parking lot and everyone's leaving. And this man who I did not know sort of ran up to me and he goes, hey, can I pray for you? And I was a little, you know, like taken aback, like, hey, bro, service already ended, but uh, all right, okay. I didn't want to, you know, squelch the Holy Spirit. So I'm like, sure, you can pray with me. And he proceeded to put his hand on the left side of my face, which if you don't know, um, it's very, I have scars. I was born with congenital abnormalities. And he started to pray very loudly um, that my ear would be healed, that my face would be fixed. And, and I got really uncomfortable, like really uncomfortable. And so he's praying for me and I didn't say anything and I let him finish and he said amen. And, um, and later I got really angry about that, right? And here's the thing, that man, I know because that, that's my tribe. I would consider myself part of this tribe to act. I know he was well-meaning. I know he was so well-intentioned. Definitely know that. But there's a certain, um, sometimes uh, we've found that we can act on based on what we see without a certain level of humility, a certain level of discernment. When I read the stories of Jesus, when he heals people, I constantly see this. He heals them and then what does he do next? He says, be quiet. Don't tell anyone. Don't go share this around. It's almost like he's healing because that's what life does. Life brings back to life. But he's like trying to avoid that part of him. He's like, it's not the right time yet. So that brings us to the fourth response then. If you can have action without humility, you can also have action with humility. And for, for this, I think the best example is a woman in my church in high school. Um, she was like the matriarch of the church. Uh, she was amazing. She was an English woman. Her and her husband, as a second career, like 50s onward, they ended up planting hundreds, if not thousands of churches in Mozambique. Um, she was just, there was a presence. So like you'd get in her presence and you would be in tears within seconds because there was such a joy about her. But anyway, one time, um, this was at a period in my life, a very, uh, a, a crux, like a crossroads for me. I was trying to decide careers and I felt like God was calling me to follow in the ministry, but I didn't know and I didn't, I was just really confused. And so I was back home, I was living in Atlanta at the time, but I was back home in North Carolina. And uh, as, we were, as we were worshiping, um, this woman came up to me who I had never met, I'd never met. 
And um, she walks up to me and she goes, are you Russell? And I said, yeah. And proceed to find out that the Holy Spirit had given her my name, but that's it. The Holy Spirit said, hey, that's Russell. Go pray with him. You'll find out what to pray for when you get there. So she came up and she was like, I I feel like I should pray for you. I don't know why. And I just start bawling. (laughs) And I tell her what's going on. And then she's just got this smile on her face, like just this love. And she's like, you know, may I I hold your hands? And I was like, you do whatever you want right now. (laughs) And she holds my hands and she proceeds to pray with me. And here's the other thing that was really interesting. Um, My freshman year in college, uh, there was a moment one night in my dorm room where God moved very powerfully. Um, And I felt the Holy Spirit say some things that I wrote down that I've never told anyone except for Anna. I felt like I owed that to her when we got married. Um, But no one has ever seen that. And as Lindy prayed for me, She said a couple lines verbatim that I felt like God had said to me my freshman year in college. So, those are the four responses to the Holy Spirit. And I think as we want to uh, answer this question of, well, what does that mean? Obviously, I'm not not hiding myself. I think the the appropriate response um, is the fourth one. What does it look like to act but with a deep level of humility and discernment. What does it look like, in Jesus' case, to heal someone on Monday knowing you're gonna be crucified on Friday? Would you still heal? What does it look like to approach someone as Jesus approached in John 5? And before he did anything, he asked, what's your name? What's your story? Do you wanna be made whole? He asked him in John 5. I don't know if you know this. He doesn't just go up and heal. He says, do you even want to be made whole? What does it look like to, uh, to live in the power of the Spirit but with an incredible sense of humility? That's what we want to get at today. And obviously, since it's Pentecost Sunday, as we read, Acts 2 is probably the best place to go to. Acts 2 details the birth of the church. It's sort of the inauguration of the next chapter of God's redemptive plan in and for the world. Now what's so fascinating is Pentecost is a Jewish holiday uh, called the Feast of Weeks. And Pentecost, for Jews, celebrates the 50th day after Passover. So Passover happens, 50 days later is Pentecost, which in Jewish history commemorates uh, when God gave Moses the Torah um, on Mount Sinai. God gave Moses, and by extension, the people of Israel, his law. Now one thing, and this is kinda, it's not pertinent for today's teaching, but I think it's interesting and necessary for us. When I talk about the law of Israel, Jewish law, Torah, I think that can be um, confusing for us because law for us in our present day is very cold, very rigid, kinda like we have to obey the law it's impartial, right? And it's like if you, if you disobey, there's punishment. It's, we don't have a, a fun connotation with the law. Torah is the word that describes what God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. And Torah, even though we translate it law, it's less law and it's more philosophy. Think about it like that. God gave the Israelites 
his philosophy, his way of life. And so for the Israelites, it wasn't like this cold set of rules that they had to obey. It was more like a story that they were living within. It was more like this living God who dwelt near them and said, I want to show you my heart. I want to show you how I live. And I want to call you to that same lifestyle because it's full of joy and life. So a lot of Israel, at least at the beginning, didn't find the Torah, the law, burdensome. They actually responded with joy to it. And so just think through that, especially as we consider a little bit more the the distinction between Judaism and Christianity. But the Pentecost celebrates when God gave Moses his Torah, his teaching. And you find when you read scripture that God kind of likes to mirror himself. So in the New Testament, we know that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and resurrected around Passover weekend. He was the liberation. So Passover celebrates when God liberated the Jews out of slavery, out of Egypt. And then 50 days later, he gives them his new way of life. For Christians, Jesus' death and resurrection celebrates when we are liberated out of sin, out of slavery. And then 50 days later, God descends. He gives the Holy Spirit. And this time, he doesn't give his philosophy, his way of life on stone tablets. No, he dives straight into the believer's heart and he writes it on their hearts. And so I think for us, when we're looking at the question is who is the Holy Spirit? The best way we can get at that is not asking who, but kind of asking what. What do we see the Holy Spirit do? Because if we look at what the Holy Spirit does, that'll sort of shed light on who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit's role in God's plan is. And obviously this is like, we could preach on the Holy Spirit for an entire year. This is so many series. So this is gonna be brief and truncated, But as I examine Acts 2, there are four chief things happening that the Holy Spirit is doing. And I just wanna walk through these. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does is reveals God's story. Reveals God's story. Notice that the response of Peter after the tongue of fire descends, after he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the response of Peter to everyone asking what is happening right now is not to say, all right, scrap the old story, God's writing a new one. What does he do? He retells the Jewish story and he demonstrates how Jesus completes it. See, they ask, they're like, what does this mean? We hear everyone speaking the wonders of God in our language, what's happening? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he quotes the prophet Joel, He quotes Psalms twice, and though he doesn't directly quote, there are distinct echoes of other scriptures, other themes in God's story, so as to demonstrate how the death and resurrection of Jesus is like the key that unlocks the entire thing. It's like the cipher that now we're able to decode the entire message, and not just Jesus of Nazareth, but his death and his resurrection. That is the fulcrum point. Everything is found in that. Jesus, says Peter, does not abolish what God has done previously. He completes it. And the Holy Spirit reveals this to be true, that it's always been part of the plan. Anyone ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? Right? I think this is the best example. If you haven't, I'm going to spoil it, but it came out in like the 90s, so you're kind of late to the game. 
with the sixth sense tells the story um, of Bruce Willis. I forget the character's name, but Bruce Willis, he's like a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and he's helping a kid who sees ghosts, who sees dead people. And you're following along through the whole story, the whole movie, and you're like, oh, okay, this makes sense, but it's sort of building up. He's trying to, to help this kid. And then at the very end, you get, I mean, if you've seen it, you know, the plot twist of all plot twists, Bruce Willis himself has been a ghost the whole time. And you're like, fall off your stool, what in the world? And then what do you do? You start the movie over again, right? And when you watch back through, what do you see? You see little moments where you're like, oh my gosh, it makes sense. That's what Peter's doing. That's what Peter's doing. The Jews had the story. They knew who God was. He, they had elements of God's nature. And then, and then the plot twist of all plot twists, God does not send a savior, God comes himself in human flesh. And the author of all life does not conquer through violence and warfare. The author of all life conquers by subjecting himself to death, but not remaining dead. Plot twist of all plot twists. And then he gives the Holy Spirit to his disciples and goes, go back and read the whole story and you see Jesus everywhere. You see him everywhere. But this is important for us Christians, for non-Jewish Christians, because if you're ever part of hearing teaching or theology that seems to write off the Jewish story, it's mistaken. We are not... The Christianity is not God saying, I've abandoned the Jews and now I'm just here. Christianity is saying, no, no, there's one covenant. There's always been one covenant. I'm grafting y'all in. I'm enlarging the boundaries of my family is what I'm doing. Jesus reveals and the Holy Spirit reveals how Jesus has always been part of the story. So let it be known in all Israel, says Peter, that God made this Jesus of Nazareth, Lord and Messiah, whom you crucified. Or as one ancient scholar put it, the New Testament is hidden in the Old. The Old Testament is revealed in the New. And the key is Jesus himself. So now through the Holy Spirit, we are able to know the fullness of God's story. And we're able to remind one another of it. In John 14, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete. And the paraclete is a Greek word that kind of expansive, but it basically has the idea of um, of a comforter, an encourager, right? Uh, someone who consoles, someone who exhorts. The Holy Spirit is now that in us, exhorting us back to the story, revealing what God's intention and will has always been in the story. I remember I met with a, a friend one time um, who relapsed. He was a recovering addict and he relapsed and he was heartbroken in the hospital. And what was I able to do? I was able to be like, bro, it's not about you at all. Remember who Jesus is. Remember who Jesus is. We remind each other of the story over and over and over. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does, he doesn't write a new story. He reveals to us God's story. He unlocks God's story, so to speak. And the key is Jesus. The second thing I see the Holy Spirit do in scripture and specifically in this text, the Holy Spirit works in providential but I want you to read uncomfortable ways. 
Now this is the dimension of the Holy Spirit's work that makes us really nervous. And it does so, me too, FYI, it does so because our society in the West is fiercely individualistic and rational. And we're not that just because humans are that, we are products of our environment. We live in a culture in a time that has attempted to explain away all elements of transcendence and divinity. There's an awesome book uh, by a philosopher, a Catholic philosopher named Charles Taylor called A Secular Age. I have never read that book because it's massive and like a thousand pages long. But I did read a book by James K. Smith, who's another philosopher, who read that book and then talked about it and it was really good. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you guys. I'm just being honest, all right? I trust James K. Smith. But Smith talks about Taylor saying in the pre-modern versus modern self-consciousness, right? Pre-modern versus modern consciousness. And the separator for that was the enlightenment. The pre-modern self, Taylor says, is porous. Is the word he uses, porous. And what he means by that is in pre-modern times, the heavens and the earth intermingled, right? It was very common to be a part of a culture that said, hey, that region over there and that rock, that's a magical rock, right? The gods or God, they, they were part, they were among us, they influenced our lives. That was very common. But what we found with the enlightenment is we started in the scientific revolution is we started to discover the mechanics of how this thing worked, how this world worked. And when we discovered the mechanics, even though, and this is the, the logical fallacy in the Enlightenment, we think because we understand how it works, we understand why it is. That question's still never been answered. But because we understand how, what happened to the self was it became no longer porous, but buffered. Now the heavens are cut off from the earth. The earth here, um, it's ordered, it's structured, it's like a watch. In a sense, God made a complex watch and all the trinkets and the dials, they're there and they're working and it's now for us to figure out how they all work and he's like, I'm out. You got it from here. And not only are the heavens cut off from the earth, but humans are cut off from one another. So the modern self is very buffered. Hence what we've discovered is this process of disenchantment. And, and read that quite literally, or if you're like Parks and Rec, read it quite literally. <laughs> disenchantment. Understanding something is no longer a matter of understanding its essence or its why, why it's here. Understanding something is understanding its mechanics, its how. So what we've been born into in the West today is called the eclipse of grace, says Taylor. And the eclipse of grace is this. Since God's providential concern for his world is reduced to an economic ordering of creation for our mutual benefit, that is, he put all the, the levers and the pulleys and everything in motion, it all works. Since that's what we mean in today's day and age by God's providence, and since that order and design is discernible by our reason, by our minds, since we can figure it out, then by reason and discipline, 
humans could rise to the challenge and realize it. The result is a kind of intellectual works-based righteousness. You gotta figure it out to be saved, so to speak. We can figure this out without assistance. Oh, God still plays a role as either the watchmaker who got the ball rolling or the judge who will evaluate how, we, how well we did in the end. But in the long middle, God plays no discernible role or function and is uninvolved and the sense of mystery fades. And this is how you know that you and I suffer from this. We're talking with someone and someone goes, um, well just, I'll just tell my own story. So I remember I was talking with someone and, and they were talking about looking for a job and they met a headhunter and this was a couple years back and the headhunter goes, they were telling me that the headhunter prayed with him at the end. And my first response was not, oh good. My first response was what? Cynicism. Because why would God, you know, intervene in our looking for a job, right? The heavens are up here. The, the earth works like a watch. We can figure it out. When you get to the point, when you get to the point where your friend's telling you, hey, I'm looking for a job, and this person, they're praying with me, and your response is, thank goodness, that should be the first thing you're doing. Then you've gone back to a poor self then you realize that the living God actually is involved in our lives and works, works in real and uncomfortable ways. And what we see in Pentecost is that the Spirit of God descends and indwells each as tongues of fire and enables them to speak in languages that are not their native languages. See, when God shows up the response is that uh, we're told the people who are listening, they are existano and ethalmazan. Existano is where we get ecstasy from, ecstatic. It means literally to lose your mind. That's, that's the fact of the matter, guys. When the Holy Spirit shows up, there's a certain uh, cord that our minds can't fully get to. We lose our minds because we cannot explain how this is happening other than there is a living God. And they are ethalmazon. They are amazed. They marvel. See, the reality is, in the Christian story, the Holy Spirit is always present in this world, working, working everywhere. Sometimes the Spirit's presence becomes a little more solid a little more tangible, and that scares us because in those moments, we know that there is a living God. And when the living God draws near, friends, man, you lose your mind. You're terrified. Not because you think the God, God's gonna hurt you. You're terrified because you know you're suddenly very aware of who you are. <laughs> very aware. And what I've noticed and thought about is that um, those who sort of respond to the Holy Spirit's work as action without humility, and those who are the avoidance ones, those who says the Holy Spirit never works, they make the same error. And the same error is this, they try to control God. They try to say, God will always work like this. Friends, when I read the story, what I re realize is the Holy Spirit does not enable us to do our work. We're the objects, we're the instruments 
being used by God to do his. He's inviting us into his story. He's inviting us into his story. And sometimes in his story, you might speak in languages that you don't know, that are not native. But keep in mind, there were those there who did speak those languages. So in a sense, you're not losing your mind entirely because there's someone there who goes, oh, I know what they're saying, and look, they're speaking the wonders of God in my language, but how are they doing that? They're Galileans, and they're ordinary, amateur, untrained Galileans. Two chapters later, in John 4, I might have said this a couple weeks back, um, when, when Peter and John healed a guy uh, outside the temple, and they're brought before the high priest, um, they're called idioti, idiots. It means untrained. So idiots in the Greek root means untrained. I just thought that was fun. I don't know why I got off that, but that's, I love words, I love words. But we're told that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages the Spirit gave them ability. You step into a story where you're not the author and when you're not the author, you sort of yield a certain amount of power. And providential, before we jump off this one, providential does not just mean sort of spiritual phenomenon that makes us uncomfortable. Providential can also mean God is orchestrating threads in his story that are bigger than for us to see. Recognize, when this happened, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and these 120 disciples are speaking in languages that are not their native tongue, there are those from every region who were in Jerusalem at the time. It's the Feast of Weeks. So in Jewish culture, um, the Jews from scattered throughout the Roman Empire, they've come back home to Jerusalem to celebrate. And that's when God chooses us, the perfect time to pour out his spirit. Because what happens? What happens? They hear the gospel and they receive it and they're baptized. God orchestrated that. That's providential too. And then what did they do? What did they do after they finished? After they heard the gospel, they were amazed, they were cut to the heart, they repented, they were baptized. What did they do? I assume they went home. And so the gospel spread. We do not control God's work. We are the instruments of the living God who he empowers to do it. So that's number two. He works in providential, read uncomfortable ways. Third thing the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit creates unity through diversity. We're told that one tongue of fire comes down and divides. The word is diamorizo. Diamorizo, one tongue of fire divides onto each person. And each spoke the language unknown to them, but all were speaking the wonders of God. Catch that. They're speaking different languages, but it's the same subject. It's the same content. Because everyone from those regions are hearing the wonders of God being expressed. I think this is one of my favorites of what the Holy Spirit does and what makes Christians super unique. The Holy Spirit incarnates, that is to say, comes to us and redeems each of our cultures. Um, most of y'all know my wife is a cinematographer and yesterday we were doing a Korean wedding and much of the service was in Korean. 
And I remember there's this one point where they were praying in Korean, and I don't speak Korean. But as I'm looking around and I'm seeing heads nod and smile, I had tears in my eyes. I don't know if you know this, but I just cry at every wedding, basically. I had tears in my eyes because I didn't know what they were saying, but I knew what they were saying. And so I could join them in prayer. That's the beauty. I could join them. I could also declare the wonders of God and I could ask for blessing on this couple. I could do that too. And that's really special. In Islam, the Quran is only divinely inspired if it's in Arabic, which I don't say that's a comparative, but simply just a state, a state of fact, observation. It is only considered divinely inspired in the language of the region where it was birthed, not with Christianity. From the very start of the church, we see it's not about the culture, it's about the God who's coming and redeems all of us. You've heard me say this quote before, African theologian Laman Sine. He goes, the gospel should not create remade Europeans. The gospel should create renewed Africans. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the gospel and what the Holy Spirit does is we are unified through our diversity. What makes you and I family is not that we share the same culture. I'm an Irish chap who's from North Carolina. I love beer, bluegrass, and an occasional fight, an occasional one. (laughs) But it's a love fight, guys. It's a love fight. It's like wrestling, all right? That's not what makes us Christians together in the same family. You don't have to love those things at all. What makes us Christians together is that you and I come on Sunday, we fall on our knees and we look at one another and we say, can you believe this God loves us this much? It's like, yeah, man, that's incredible. That's what makes us family. And the gospel at its best should not be creating cookie cutter cultures across the world. The gospel should be taking the best things about each one of our cultures and showing and sort of infusing it such that at its core is sacrificial love and generosity and virtue and trust and faithfulness. The same God, the same spirit divides into each one of us. I love that about our God, that the Holy Spirit creates unity through diversity. I love that. In 1 Corinthians 12, um, Paul's writing a letter to the church in Corinth, and they are struggling with the whole idea of spiritual gifts. They are struggling. They don't know what to do with it. And so he's trying to explain, and he says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but the same God who activates all of them and everyone. What's he saying? He's discussing how the spiritual gifts comprise the church as a body moving us toward one end, that is witnessing to Jesus. And so he he lists some of the gifts. Some of us have the gifts of teaching, hospitality, others administration, others encouragement, and others service. I remember I was having a conversation with some people um, talking about Brooklyn. They're like, what does Brooklyn need most? What does Brooklyn need most? And one person said, Brooklyn needs to hear the gospel. We need to tell them the gospel. The other person says, Brooklyn needs reconciliation. It's broken. It needs to be reconciled. And the other person says, it needs competent and trustworthy organizations. What are they saying? They're all saying the same thing. 
They're all just responding out of the gift that the Spirit has given them. One person saying, Brooklyn needs evangelism. Other person saying, Brooklyn needs justice and service. The other person saying, Brooklyn needs solid administration. One Spirit gives us different passions, different gifts to equip us for one body. The issue becomes when we start looking down on one another's gifts or saying, wait, my gift is definitely more important than your gift. Or saying, um, because someone doesn't care as deeply about this aspect of, of the church, that they're less a Christian. That's when we start getting into trouble. And so Paul recognizes that. And he ends chapter 12 having that discussion about the one spirit but the various gifts. And he says, you are the body of Christ and individually you are members of it. Now let me show you the most perfect way. And then even if you're not a Christian, you probably know chapter 13. It's the famous discourse on love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. What's he saying? He's saying God is not making us all to be the same. He's given you passions that are uniquely yours, and it's needed in the church. But beneath that, what binds us and what creates us as a body is love. And not this vapid sort of love that's really kindness, that wants each other's happiness, which we talked about either last week or two weeks ago, sacrificial love, saying, legitimately, I put your needs before my own, which we're all growing toward that. That's what makes the church so unique. When you see so many diverse cultures and their fullness and their richness, and you see them coming to the same table as family, putting each other's needs before their own, man, that's something the world's never seen. And that's something that surrounding culture will look at and be like, who are they? And how do they do that? And so we're told in Acts 2 that all who believed were together and had everything in common. So it reveals God's story, the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit works in providential read uncomfortable ways. The Holy Spirit creates unity through diversity. And finally, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. Notice, the Holy Spirit inspired Peter's sermon, but Peter's sermon was not about the Holy Spirit. Peter's sermon was all about Jesus. Oh, I heard one theologian put it this way, the church is instituted by Christ but constituted by the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the church is Jesus's body and what holds us together is the Holy Spirit. And what you recognize is when we point to Jesus, one other element of the story comes out to play that kind of works with the second one. We're told that there's always accompanying signs, wonders, and deeds of power. Verse 22, Peter says, you heard these words that Jesus of Nazareth a man appointed by God to you with power and wonders and signs which God did through him among you as you know. Or Hebrews 2.4, God added to Jesus' testimony by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You recognize when you read the New Testament about what the Holy Spirit does is that sermons aren't enough. 
Our hearts are too hard. We have too much time rejecting God. Sermons, even Jesus' sermons, aren't enough. That the Holy Spirit worked in uncomfortable ways with signs and wonders and deeds of power to confirm that this God is who they say, that he is the source of life, he is good. He's not trying to harm us, but to bring us back to life, to teach us to depend on him. The miracles confirm that Jesus is who he says he is. And the miracles preview the kingdom of the new heaven and the new earth. I remember um, there was one time where I engaged in some decisions which I knew were not honoring to God. I knew they weren't what God wanted for me. And I won't go into all the details, but I developed a, a condition which, again, I knew was a response of my disobedience. And so I took medicine for it, and the condition went away. Um, and then four months later, I did the same decisions again, and I knew, I, like as soon as it happened, I, I, I knew that I had disobeyed, and the condition came back that night. And I was like, oh, yep, this is, this is again, divine, uh, a parent disciplining their child, wanting what's best. But this time, this time when I took medicine, the condition did not go away. And so I was like, oh, goodness. All right, what are we going to do? And there's a, a passage in the book of James, a letter James wrote in James 5. And he says, are any among the church sick? Are any sick? What they should do is they should come to the elders of the church. They should confess their sins. And because the Lord is just and full of love, the elders will lay hands on them and they'll be healed. And I just I had the sense that that's exactly what I had to do. And so I went to the church where I was an intern, by the way, which was doubly embarrassing, but of course, very much according to the gospel. And I went to the church and I confessed to the pastor. I said, hey man, this is what happened. And the pastor and the elder, they laid hands on me and they reminded me of Jesus' story and they prayed for healing and the condition went away that night and has never come back. I say that, and that kind of sort of goes against what I was talking about earlier, that Jesus healed and then said, don't tell anyone. But I share that story only because I think it'll, in that moment, God was incredibly real. And I think it's very easy, even for those who have been Christians for a long time, to make God into just this mental abstraction and forget that, no, 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 he's very present and working in our lives all the time. And the miracles confirm that Jesus is who he says he is. And so Jesus says in John 14, truly I tell you, talking to his disciples, the one who pistuo, and that's the Greek word, we usually translate that believe, but I don't think that's good for us because belief in our culture has become purely cognitive. And pistuo is not just meaning cognitive belief, it means total embodied trust. And trust is different than cognitive belief, is it not? So the one who trusts in me, pastuo in me, will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In, if in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. 
So the Holy Spirit reveals God's stories, works in providential ways, creates unity through diversity, and points to Jesus. Now what do we do with that? Now I recognize, because I know many of you, where you're coming from, and I know there's some people here who are coming from environments where pretty much the church has avoided all talk of the Holy Spirit, you just don't know what to do with it. You have some people here who are coming from environments where you've sort of affirmed, you've acknowledged the Holy Spirit, but no really action on it. You have some people who have come from environments where there's been plenty of action, but kind of lacking in humility and discernment. And there's some who maybe have come from healthy environments where there's action, where there's asking the Holy Spirit to show up, to, to interact to instruct, to teach us, to change something in our lives, to confirm the story. So what do we do? You've been burned by the church, you're scared. Peter gives us the answer. Because they asked him that. They're like, they were cut to the heart. What do we do? Repent. Repent. Comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change your thinking and to go back to Torah, to change your way of life to change your your thinking to the absolute, to the core, such that when someone says, will you pray for me? Your first thought isn't cynicism. Your first thought is, good. This should be the first thing we're doing, is asking God to be involved in this. Repent and be baptized. So I don't know what your repentance looks like today. I don't know what your repentance looks like. I've been prayer walking Brooklyn over the last couple months or month. And I remember I was in a session where Tim Keller said, um, asking about revival. It's like, what is, when you pray for revival, what do you pray for? And he goes, to pray revival is to pray hallowed be your name. It's from the Lord's Prayer. To pray revival is to say, Jesus, I want your name to be the absolute center of everything. And as I've been prayer walking Brooklyn, and specifically the western side of the park, since that's where we live and where the church is, I find myself increasingly despair because we have so much that the story won't be enough. The only thing that will get through to Brooklyn, to us, that God is who he says he is, will be that deep level of repentance. Will be hearts that are crying out saying, either you show up or I'm out. And then giving him a chance to show up. So what do you need to be revived from today? Anger? Is there anger that's deeper than the gospel? Bitterness? Are you bitter towards something that's happened to you, which you haven't let God touch, you haven't let the Holy Spirit into? Unforgiveness? Is there someone who's wronged you and you just cannot, you just can't forgive them? You're not gonna be able to unless the Holy Spirit enables you. That's the point of the story. You can't do anything. You can't come to Jesus. Jesus comes to you and makes his home among you. Fear? Are you terrified? Because if you're terrified, then the Holy Spirit hasn't lodged himself and his presence in the deepest parts. He hasn't created a pastuo inside you yet. Anxiety? Addiction? Ungenerousness? What is it that grips your heart? That you're like, "Ah, nope, not yet. And what I want to do is I want to take some time right now 
and just worship together. And to worship through unity, but pray and singularity for God, for the Holy Spirit to work on us. So I wanna invite the prayer team back up. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna spend some time singing. And I encourage you, if you wanna remain seated, you can remain seated. If you wanna stand and worship, you can stand and worship. We're gonna have people in the back willing to pray. If you need something like I did when I came to the elders and I asked for prayer, go to the back or I'll also be in the front to pray. I know we haven't done this at Hope Brooklyn yet, so I know some people might be a little uncomfortable by this. We're family. We're gonna do a lot of uncomfortable things together. And so I challenge you and I encourage you to perhaps let down your guard, to perhaps hear the gospel and say on this day, Lord, on Pentecost Sunday, thousands of years after the first, after the birth of the church, would you say this one thing that I've been holding on to for so long, I give it to you, Lord. Spirit, you have permission to bring healing to it. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive. You're alive, you're alive. You were dead and God raised you to life. And because of that, the entire world, from the east to the west, north to south, it is within your hands. You have redeemed it for love. Lord, if there are people in here who think that you're about judgment, you're about condemnation, will you change that in their hearts? You have not come to kill the world. You have actually come to heal it. Your spirit is searching to and fro for hearts that would be open to saying, come Lord, So Holy Spirit, we pray, come now. Come now and work among us. People who are scared, people who are bitter, people who have unforgiveness, people who are anxious, people who have said they worship you or they, they follow you in mind only but have not let you into the deep matters of their heart. Holy Spirit, will you just speak to them right now? Will you encourage them? Will you challenge them? Will you give them one word? Will you reveal the living God story that you have come to heal and set free? Do work among us right now, Lord. We worship you. It's in the resurrected Son's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand and worship together?